session. It's April 1st, April Fool's Day. Uh, and appropriately, I've been asked to fill in for Dr. Fink. Um, uh, we initially had asked Chris Rock to be here, but he, he politely declined. Um, uh, and so I guess you're left with me. Uh, I have the pleasure this morning of introducing two fantastic speakers uh, uh, from the uh, Community Health Network uh, system. Uh, I can tell you when I uh, come into a given week clinically and take a look at my panel of uh, maybe 40 to, to 60 patients in a given week, uh, I look at that as a, a responsibility to take care of a lot of patients. Here are two individuals uh, who are accountable for hundreds of thousands. Um, and I know sometimes it's very easy as a healthcare provider who is frustrated with um, authorizations, pre-authorizations, uh, to look at an insurer um, uh, or the ASO and, uh, um, uh, 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 and see them as the other, and I can assure you they're not. Um, I feel very fortunate to have interacted with Dr. Carbonari on a number of occasions. Uh, she's been incredibly helpful, um, and her coming here today to explain to us uh, exactly how our system with Husky works, uh, I hope uh, you will find as valuable uh, as I have found uh, discussions with her in the past. So we have two great speakers today. Uh, Dr. Carbonari is the medical reviewer for uh, Community Health Network of Connecticut, um, a pediatrician uh, who practiced here in the state uh, and has done uh, tremendous things with advocacy uh, for the children of Connecticut over the past several decades. We're also pleased to welcome Dr. Uh, Larry Magris, uh, who's the SVP for Population Health and CMO for Community Health Network of Connecticut. Uh, so uh, thank you very much, and we'll get right into their talk. Cindy, you're on mute. Oh, I don't, you, there you are. Oh, okay. Um, anyway, good morning, everyone. I'm, I'm Sandy Carbonari, and um, thanks for that nice introduction. And looking through the, um, the participants, I, I recognize a bunch of names. But for those of you that I don't know, um, after I, practicing primary care pediatrics in Waterbury for over 40 years, uh, mostly at the St. Mary's um, Pediatric Clinic, uh, I retired from active practice, and then several years ago, I began working as a medical reviewer at CHN, and I, I very quickly realized that I really didn't understand how Medicaid worked in Connecticut, even after taking care of Medicaid, you know, Husky patients for, for many, many years. And in talking to some of my AAP colleagues, I realized that most of us really don't understand the system while we're in practice, and that kind of discussions with Jonathan and, and um, that sort of led to this today's presentation. So the goals um, for today uh, are, are, are basically to understand the Connecticut model for Medicaid, introduce the ASO, um, which is Administrative Service Organization, which is um, Community Health Network, <clears throat> excuse me, of Connecticut, and then to review some of the processes that affect you and your patients, uh, namely you know, pr uh, prior authorization, inpatient admissions, appeals, as well as redeterminations. So the, um, you'll see the agenda on the next slide. And uh, Dr. Larry McGraw will start out with the history of the evolution of the Connecticut model for Medicaid, or what we call our Husky program. 
and then the discussion of CHN as an organization and the many, the many functions that it, it does um, have in the state. And then I'm gonna go on to discuss the basics of utilization management um, and medical necessity, the authorization process, et cetera. And so Larry is gonna start off and there he is. Hi. Thanks, thanks, Sandy. Good morning, everyone, and thanks for having us. And um, I'm Larry McGraw. I'm the uh, Senior Vice President for Population Health and Chief Medical Officer for Community Health Network of Connecticut. Uh, I'm an internist slash hospitalist by background and been a clinician for 30 years. And I've been in my current role at CHN for uh, July will be six years. So um, as Sandy um, said, so we're gonna talk a little bit about how Medicaid works in the state of Connecticut. Um, I think that's important to understand because it's different than um, just about everywhere else. Um, and so going into the history, so Medicaid started um, with Medicare back in the 60s and really was sort of unregulated and functioned as a fee-for-service type model um, all the way through 1994, when in 1994, um, the state, the legislature decided to move to managed care. Um, this was largely based on a uh, review that was done at the time, um, noting that the state um, really had no oversight um, under a fee-for-service environment, and um, they couldn't assess how care was being delivered, if it was being delivered uh, cost-effectively, what the quality of the care that was being delivered. Um, so they moved to managed care and accepted applications for managed care companies, you may know them as HMOs, um, to participate in the Medicaid program. And um, that's done um, through the state applying for a federal waiver under Medicaid called an 1115 waiver. And so from 1995 through 2010, um, there was managed care in the delivery system for the Medicaid program. And there were two main Medicaid programs at that time, that's low-income children, their caregivers and pregnant women. Um, and then um, the second population was the elderly or persons with disabilities who um, either are dual eligible with Medicare and Medicaid or were on Medicaid waiting to become eligible for Medicare. Um, and so at one point there were up to 13 managed care companies participating in Medicaid. It really was a free for all and very difficult to, uh, for the state to administer. Um, in 2008, um, the governor terminated the contracts of four managed care companies um, in the Medicaid program because they refused to comply with a Freedom of Information Act for some of their contracts. Uh, so there was really this, this movement at this time to get rid of managed care. And um, there was a presentation. So Medicare on a legislative, uh, Medicaid on a, a legislative um, level is overseen by a legislative committee called the Medicaid Assistant Program Oversight Council or MAPOC. Um, and at, um, at, in a presentation, DSS made a recommendation to MAPOC, um, to the legislature to get rid of managed care completely and move into this administrative services organization model. And the reason they did that um, was, again, to, to understand what was happening in Medicaid better and to measure performance better um, and to get more oversight of the program. Um, the state really, um, at that point, um, had been for two years functioning, trying to manage it on its own, and they realized that they needed help because they really couldn't manage the program. 
Um, so the pendulum swings back. And so in 2010, um, the ASO model was, was founded. Um, the the um, Department of Social Services put out a request for proposals or RFPs for the administrative, uh, the ASOs, the administrative service organizations. And they basically put out four different contracts. Um, one was for medical, one for behavioral, one for dental, and one for non-emergency transportation. Um, under this ASO arrangement, um, DSS has a single unified integrated data set with all of the Medicaid claims and encounter data. Um, so they could really start to assess performance better um, and look at quality measures. The difference with a managed care organization is that the ASOs do not pay claims and are not at financial risk. So the state continues to pay claims directly um, and the ASOs are on flat administrative contracts um, for the work that they do. So there is no incentive to withhold care or deny care as there might be with a managed care organization. Two other in, um, important distinctions between an ASO and a managed care organization is that the state contracts with the providers directly and you probably all get your um, uh, enrollment as a provider data uh, forms from Gainwell like every five years to re-enroll. Um, so the state contracts with this Gainwell, this company Gainwell Technologies to enroll the providers, maintain a provider file and do all of the claims processing. So what does Medicaid look like now? Um, the Husky program, healthcare for uninsured kids and youth um, is four programs. So again, Husky A being the classic Medicaid in most other states. Um, which is pregnant women and low-income children um, as uh, with the um, criteria as listed on the slides. Husky B, which is not really part of Medicaid, but it's lumped into Medicaid in the state of Connecticut. It's the um, Children's Health Insurance Program. Husky C is what has become the name for the um, uh, persons, the seniors and persons with disabilities. And then Husky D was a new program, which is the low income adults program, um, again, for uh, adults uh, from 19 to 64 who do not qualify for Husky A. Um, there was a small group of low income adults that qualified um, prior to the ACA Medicaid expansion in the state of Connecticut in 2010. But with the expansion, um, the state added about 200,000 low-income adults to the Husky D population. So we are, uh, the, the Medicaid is now one of the largest insurers, if not the largest in the state of Connecticut, insuring one in 3.5 um, uh, persons. Again, we were one of the first states to expand Medicaid under the ACA with most of the growth being in the Husky D population. And if you look at the graph, the, the table at the bottom of the slide, you can see what the current enrollment looks like. Um, in um, the first three months of 22, we are now over a million lives. Um, I think uh, the mention before was several hundred thousand. It's now over a million. Um, we've seen, you can see Husky D is now up to about 350,000. We've added about 120,000 or 110,000 folks under the Husky D benefit during the pandemic um, because of the uh, loss of employment and changes in the economy. And uh, the last uh, row on the bottom shows how many kids there are. So when you see children, you see a lot of Medicaid kids because there are 383,000 uh, um, kids in the state of Connecticut on Medicaid. 
So um, I mentioned Community Health Network won the bid for the, R the RFP bid for the Medical Administrative Services Organization, and we've functioned in that role since January 1st, 2012. So who are we as a company? Uh, we're a 501c4 not-for-profit, and we started as a health plan because we were founded in 1995 when managed care was in the state of Connecticut. And we are sponsored by seven of the, the state's federally qualified health centers. And the goal at that time was to bring some nonprofit oversight into managed care in the state of Connecticut. So we functioned as a health plan for 16 years. Um, previous to that, we had served the Saga and um, Husky uh, populations. And then since uh, January 1st of 2012, um, we've served as the ASO for the medical benefit in the entire Husky program. Uh, we are high trust certified. What does that mean? High trust is an organization that um, certifies compliance with HIPAA and high tech at the highest level. So we have the highest level of um, certification for managing PHI and ensuring that our data is secure. And when I tell you what we do with data, you'll understand why that's important. We are UREC certified in care management, diabetes management, and utilization management. UREC is one of two bodies that um, accredits health plans, the other being NCQA. Um, it stands for Utilization Review Accredited Com uh, Committee, which is how it started just in utilization management, but now has um, uh, broad oversight over all the functions of a health plan. We are a quality improvement-like organization. And what does that mean? CMS recognizes us as doing quality improvement activities. That actually helps the state get more money from the federal government for the Medicaid program. And we operate out of two buildings in Wallingford, Connecticut. So what are some of the operations? So um, although we are not a health plan, we do a lot of the functions that a health plan normally would do. Um, so that includes quality management. We have a quality management uh, department with nurses. We do all of the health outcomes measures reporting for the state. So again, able to monitor the quality of care that's being delivered in the Medicaid program um, in the state of Connecticut across all four of the Medicaid programs. So we do all of the HEDIS measures and that includes some administrative um, abstraction of claims as well as chart reviews. Um, the, our results are audited by an NCQA certified auditor, and we do report and um, HEDIS rates for the Medicaid program for the state of Connecticut through NCQA. In addition, the Department of Social Services creates custom measures, which are um, quality outcomes that are not covered under HEDIS, which they think are important for Medicaid, and a host of other quality measures, including the AHRQPQI um, measures, uh, the CMS adult and um, child corset measures. And just yesterday, Dr. Richard sent me the list of OHS measures, which they're developing under their new transparency um, program. We, uh, we create and um, do quality improvement projects. We are required by contract to have a minimum of two quality improvement projects going on at a, at a single time. And we do that through an annual quality management program description work plan, and then a program evaluation of the previous year, looking at did we meet our quality improvement goals? Um, and those are done through a number of member and provider facing quality initiatives. And so we 
have care management that deal with the members directly. We have a member services area that deals with the members directly. And we have a number of uh, provider reps that deal with the practices. We have a very large uh, member um, services area, which we call member engagement. Um, so we manage the call center and they manage about 20,000 calls um, with all any member question, member complaint, um, difficulty in finding a primary care physician or a specialty physician, the member reps, the member engagement reps assist in all of those processes. Um, from a data management perspective, again, we have a single unified um, set of data of all Medicaid claims since January 1st, 2012. So that is a treasure trove of data for mining. Um, and it is big data. It's up to about eight terabytes of data from all the claims from health risk questionnaires from a number of different sources. Um, and it all resides in a data and power redundant environment. We have internal IT resources that manage all of that, and we manage a secure provider portal where uh, providers can request a um, sign-on and access um, member reports, including gaps in care report, admission discharge reports. Um, there are in, in excess of 20 different reports that are on there that are all written by programmers in our IT department um, and maintained um, with coding updates, et cetera. We also have a large population management department, which does all of the cost and utilization reporting, predictive modeling, um, develop ad hoc reports for um, the state. We're currently helping them with um, uh, their, what will telehealth look like post um, the public health emergency, the new maternity bundle that they're de um, developing, and they're reassessing what um, primary care payment reform should look like in Medicaid. So we assist in all of the reporting necessary to support those programs and initiatives. Um, from a network management perspective, um, again, we have provider engagement reps um, in two areas. Um, the uh, one set that um, are constantly reaching out to uh, practices in the state of Connecticut, we are assessing the adequacy of the PCP and specialty networks and recruiting providers to join uh, Medicaid. And once a PCP office joins Medicaid, if they're interested in participating in the person-centered medical home program, which many of you um, may participate in, they're referred to the CPTS team. And those are the community practice transformation specialists. They're all um, individuals who are certified by N NCQA as content experts in person-centered medical home. And they work with practices to become um, APCMH either through the GlidePath program, they assist, uh, assist them with uh, filing all the NCQA applications and paperwork in order to um, achieve that. And once um, practices reach uh, accreditation or recognition from the Joint Commission or NCQA, uh, primary care services are um, reimbursed with a fee-for-service add-on up to 24% um, of the uh, payment rate. And um, under the care management umbrella, we do have case management and disease management. We have a number of different programs. We have emergency department care managers who um, assist the, the care management staff at the state's busiest EDs in um, getting members um, transitioned out of the ED, whatever um, support services they need for a safe transition back into the environment. Similarly, we have inpatient discharge care managers that work with the hospital staff in establishing those safe transitions in any post uh, transition care and um, transition care coordinators that 
um, also work on um, establishing post-discharge follow-up appointments. We have intensive care manage case managers who work with the CHW team and they manage about 10,000 members a year of the most vulnerable um, in the Husky population, those with chronic conditions, high cost, high need members, and they identify them um, either through direct referrals from a provider, from a state agency, or we use risk stratification tools through the population health area to identify members with high need or with um, uh, emerging um, need. And we do utilization management. Um, that includes prior authorization of elective procedures, durable medical equipment, and home health. Um, any inpatient review with the exception of OB is reviewed by an inpatient care manager uh, for um, the, the medical necessity of the admission and they review about 60,000 admissions a year and under the utilization admission umbrella are the grievance and appeals um, area which is a member originated um, grievance and then the provider redetermination request. And with that, I will pass it over to Sandy um, to talk about utilization management. Okay, so, <clears throat> excuse me. So I just wanna start off with some of the basics. I'm not, I don't wanna read all the slides because there's a lot of information on them. But um, you know, as, as Larry just said, you know, utilization management covers requests that provide, basically that provide prior authorization and, and they're, all, they're listed on, on the slide. And, you know, as pediatricians, the things that we, um, will, uh, this will cover are, are just, are huge. So any kind of elective um, inpatient or outpatient surgeries, things like synergists, any, any kind of uh, DMEs, and um, it, the, the list really is quite extensive. And uh, what's, what's really important to understand is that there are very specific criteria and guidelines that are used to make a determination. And um, these, again, I'm, I'm gonna go over these briefly. Um, first, the Department of Social Services or DSS has clinical policies, and these um, I have the uh, the website there. They're uh, fairly easily found. Um, if you go to the, if that this um, this address will link you directly to that list of policies, and though briefly the way those policies um, are, are developed, it goes through probably four different committees that really vets what, um, what's gonna go into them. And again, those cover uh, a, a vast variety of things, um, various uh, DMEs from um, custom uh, shoe, uh, foot orthotics, uh, synergists, um, gender affirmation surgery, there's just, just a, a very wide variety. And for things that um, are not covered by the clinical policies, uh, we use something called InterQual, which is a proprietary evidence-based clinical decision-making tool. So it's basically an algorithm um, and it is uh, widely used um, nationally. And uh, underlying all this is the DSS definition of medical necessity. And, and I'll, I will go over that in a minute. And the, um, again, underlying everything is that every review must be looked at using a person-centered approach. So we, we are not only looking at the quote, um, disease issue, um, device, whatever, but we're looking at it through a person-centered approach. 
So now um, medical necessity. So I think this is probably, the, there, there's tons on this slide, but I think it's probably some of the most important information that you're gonna see today. And all decisions are based on, on medical necessity. And if it conflicts with um, any criteria or other guideline, the medical necessity definition prevails. And one of the reasons for that is, is it's a, um, it's a stat, it's statutory, meaning that it's determined by the state legislature and it's part of the state statutes. So this is um, really um, the, the bottom line that everything has to has to fit into these um, this this definition. And again, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, you can do that when you have, have a little bit of time. But if you have questions about why different decisions are made. Um, one of the things um, to look at is, is the definition of medical necessity. Now the different processes, uh, the, first of all, the prior authorization review process. And, um, and I remember being in practice, it's like, oh God, you know, you have to prior authorize this or that and really didn't understand what the process was. So um, I just wanna, again, quickly go through it because I want, we want to leave time for questions because I have, a, I, I suspect there's going to be a lot of questions. And so first, any, any review request goes to a nurse reviewer. And what, what they do is review the request, um, which is generally on a prior authorization form and all the accompanying documentation. And, and after looking at that, they can request more information if it looks like um, the documentation is not complete. If the request meets the criteria, it's approved and basically that's the end of it, it's approved. Now, a nurse reviewer can only approve um, a request. Uh, it, uh, they cannot deny a request. So if there are no, um, criteria or guidelines, um, then they can't approve it because they have nothing to, to work with. So it's sent to uh, for a second level uh, review with a medical reviewer who is a physician. Um, if the request does not meet the criteria or guidelines, again, it's sent to a medical reviewer who is a physician. And um, right now there are um, three pediatricians, um, all of us who practice primary care pediatrics, um, who are uh, on the medical reviewer staff. So once it comes to us, what we do is we, we look at the case and, and review whatever information that we're given. And there are several possible outcomes. If it comes from the nurse reviewer because it doesn't meet any meet criteria or guidelines, then we can um, override that. If, if we look at the case and there are um, extenuating circumstances or something that really you know uh, is compelling, we can we we can certainly override um, the interqualar DSS policy and approve the request. And again, it's it's on a, a person-centered um, approach. Um, it, we can deny it based on the um, interqualar DSS policy. And we also, we can ask for more information if we feel like, wow, you know, this just, something doesn't fit here. I really can't make a decision. We can ask for more information. When there's no response to that request and there, there are guidelines, um, the requests have to be made at least three times. And if there's no response to that request, 
then we would deny it because we don't have enough information to make a determination. And uh, the last um, situation is if there just aren't any criteria guidelines, which happens quite a bit in pediatrics, um, we can uh, approve or deny just based on our medical judgment. Now, the inpatient authorization review process is, um, is for there's emergency inpatient admission reviews. And what happens is that the hospital must, um, must notify um, the, um, CHN of any admission within one hospital day. And each case is, is looked at um, and we need to then respond within two days. So it's a really quick turnover. Um, so the nurse reviewer takes a look at it. If the admission criteria are met, then um, it, it's, it's approved and, uh, and, and we never see it as physicians. If, it's, if they're not met, then it comes, to, um, it comes to us. So when we review a case, what we're looking at, and I think again, this is sort of important information um, for you all to know, is that we're looking at the information available at the time of admission that's sent to us by the hospital. Um, we, it, we, don't we don't know or see what happens on day two, three, four, whatever. Um, so if a patient is admitted um, under the observation status and um, the case is more complex than first thought or something changes, so the admission goes beyond um, the 48 hours or of the complexity that's again, initially thought, then um, a, um, a request can be made for a change in um, the status from the observation level of care to the inpatient level of care. And that can always be done um, by, by request. And the most common reason for a denial of coverage is a request for inpatient care when, again, on that first look, um, it, the care can be provided under observation. So um, there are times, as you all know, when there's disagreement with the determination. Um, and there are uh, three different types of um, post-determination reviews. And first there is the member appeal, and that's just exactly what it sounds like. Um, a, a member can say, I don't agree with this, and there is an, um, an appeal process that, that they can go through. And then there are provider reevaluation requests and quality of care reviews. So the, the process for um, provider reevaluations, and there are three different, three different ways to do it. Um, first is the peer-to-peer -peer review, which is a phone conversation. It can be requested um, and it's within a, a certain time frame. And that would um, would again be a as I said, a phone conversation with um, hopefully the, the person who actually um, did, did your initial review. And there's, um, there's also a, what's called a level one reevaluation and that needs to be filed within seven days, although it can be expedited if, if, if necessary. And a case will be re-reviewed by a different medical reviewer than who did the first one. And if a level um, one and or peer-to-peer -peer, uh, reviews um, 
there's continued to be denial. There's an opportunity for a level two reevaluation, again, with a different reviewer. And at this is an opportunity to submit additional information, medical records, something to make the case that, um, that the denial should be changed to an approval. So again, important thing. Um, tips for a productive redetermination request. So remember that this is an opportunity to share additional information that may not be in the medical record that was submitted initially. Um, it, to resubmit the same thing probably is not going to make a, a, a huge amount of difference. And um, a plea from me, my, for me as well as my colleagues is, uh, is, is don't shoot the messenger. Um, it's, so when we have especially a peer-to-peer, -peer, it really isn't productive to um, express disagreement with DSS policy or interqual. Um, we don't make the policy, but that's what it is. Um, and, and we need to uh, abide by it. Um, and unfortunately, medical reviewers have been subjected to shouting, foul language, harangues, um, et cetera, uh, during uh, phone calls, which obviously are not helpful and they certainly don't help with an appeal. Although we do understand everyone's frustration um, and we do want, want, want to work out best for, the, you know, for the, their families. So a different type of review is uh, a quality of care review. Um, and in, in that, again, there's two types. There's a grievance and that can be filed by the patient or the guardian, or um, there can be a critical incident that's reported. And, and uh, generally it's one of the, um, the RNs that, that work with, with the um, hospitalized patients. And it's usually um, referred for patient safety, uh, adverse outcome events, and um, identified somebody by someone who's in the field. And what they do, there's a, there are uh, nurses who are specifically um, quality uh, management nurses. They request the medical records and they create a case summary of, of events, um, which is, is extremely helpful um, for us because you know, you, there can be anywhere from a hundred to eight hundred pages of documents that have to be have to be looked at, and then once everything is put together, all the information that's requested has has come in, then it's sent to a physician reviewer for final determination. And there are um, thirty one uh, different event types, and it can range anything from post op infection um, to a failure in discharge planning. And what we do is um, go over the, all the information and, and we then will uh, determine the category and the severity level. And there's four levels um, along with a no issue. So that's a, a zero. Now the levels three and four, uh, what, what that those, those levels represent um, either permanent harm, unexpected death, uh, and can be considered a critical um, in, uh, incident. And I'm sorry, I misspoke. The uh, level three um, is, is um, not necessarily permanent harm, it's temporary harm, but uh, it, it, it um, 
results in a patient having to be readmitted, having some, you know, significant um, additional uh, services or, um, you know, hospital uh, um, hospitalizations after, <coughs> excuse me, after that um, initial uh, admission. And the most common types that we see are surgical site infections and in, in adults as falls in facilities too. So the final decision uh, determining if something is a critical incident uh, is not made by just the medical reviewer. It goes to um, a team and that can include our chief medical officer, the medical director, compliance, DSS, and sometimes DPH even gets, gets, um, gets in on it too. So that's a very quick review and I try to leave time. Um, this, this is a really great, um, fairly comprehensive list of resources that can, um, can help all providers with um, making, uh, making giving care to our patients as smoothly as possible. And um, as I said, you know, looking at that um, provider page is really, really important. And to familiarize yourself with what, um, what, the, what DSS has uh, determined for different policies. And um, I guess that's everything that we have to, Larry, is there anything else you wanna add? Nope. Thank you, Sandy. Um, we appreciate the opportunity. We'll be glad to field any questions. Our emails are on mm -hmm. the slide. Um, if anyone wants to contact us outside of this session. Um, yeah. uh, uh, Drs. Carbonari and Margaret, thank you so much for that session. I think the, uh, the ability to provide uh, um, all of us attending today with context from the standpoint of both the history uh, of the evolution uh, of CHN within the state of Connecticut, um, uh, as well as actionable information for practice, I, I think uh, hopefully will be beneficial to both the specialists and generalists in attendance here today. Um, I do have some questions uh, that we're gonna move to. We'll start with uh, those on the Q&A. Um, uh, this coming from Evan Hack. It seems that when my Husky patients with special needs reach age 21, their insurance changes to Medicare, which as pediatricians we cannot participate in, even though we are still providing optimal care to these patients and their families. Would Husky consider extending these patients' coverage till age 25? Uh, so <laughs> I think, um, that so as Sandy said, please don't shoot the messenger because we don't make DSS policy. I actually think this is bigger than DSS policy because I think um, it is a federally administ administrated program, um, and so the rules for who can be covered under Medicaid versus Medicare uh, comes out of CMS, and even the state of Connecticut has. Um, very little say. Um, I think under the ACA, students can be covered. Um, so if the parent is on Medicaid, um, they can be covered till the age of 26 under the 
parent health plan, which if on Medicaid would be Medicaid. Um, I know transitions from pediatrics to adult medicine are a challenge everywhere. Um, in a former life, I was a consultant for a large healthcare consulting conglomerate. And we've worked at places like Texas Children's trying to help them with uh, that, you know, those transitions to adulthood. And I know that the underlying payer issue is a huge one. I don't know that Cindy or I have the ability to, <laughs> to assist in, in changing any of that, Evan, <laughs> but thank yeah. you for the question. Yeah. Th thanks, Evan. I know I always say, you know, if I could rule the world, that would be, <laughs> that would be on my list of things. It's, it's frustrating. Well, Sandy, I'll, I'll vote for you uh, if you want to. That sounds good. Uh, we seem to be striking out in a lot of other uh, a lot of other areas right now. I do have a question here from Rebecca Moles. What at the internal resources, or what are the internal resources at Connecticut Children's for assisting providers with peer-to-peer -peer or appeals? I don't know that you can answer that, but you may. I well, I guess I think that must be that's probably a Connecticut Children's in sort of internal. Um, thing, but, um, you know, I, I, as I said before, peer-to-peers um, can be really productive, um, but they also, also they can be extremely non-productive. So it really, um, I'm not, I don't know that we have any resources to help. Maybe that's so I, I can jump in and add to that. So um, again, we have, um, if you're talking about on the inpatient side, we have dedicated inpatient peer <clears throat> managers um, for each of the, the hospitals in the state. Um, uh, obviously not one for each hospital. Some may share a couple of hospitals, but they get, um, they're really deeply integrated um, with the care management staff at the individual facilities. So. Um, I think it's probably best to talk to your care management director and understand, uh, you know, who is doing the utilization management reviews, um, and that can be a direct line of conversation from the uh, care management slash UM department at Connecticut Children's into our um, UM department. Um, you know, we work on all sorts of cases. I mean, we've transfers from out of state, transfers from in state to to out of state. You know, we. We facilitate 400 kids a year, 400 plus being transferred to, to Boston Children's. Uh, so there are there are those lines, but I think the best line is through uh, through that um, your care management department. Um, from for prior authorization, which is coming from the physicians' offices, um, that's a little bit tougher because it is your office staff that's trying to deal with them. And again, the resources that we provided for the provider call um, call center is probably. Um, the best way to to get through. And uh, again, Sandy and I were brave enough to put our emails out on the last slide. So uh, if you're having problems and, and the normal channels aren't going through, I, I suggest that you reach out to us um, directly because we can assist. Although with a million lives, we do get a little bit busy. Uh, the um, only caveat on one of the earliest slides, um, Sandy showed, um, we do have a um, radiology review program for CTs, MRIs, and PET scans, um, but that's only in adults. So Connecticut Children's, your reviews are mostly on children. Um, you are gold carded. So if, uh, to Evan's earlier question, if you have 
um, someone in uh, Medicaid who is um, 19 or older, um, and you are ordering one of those three modalities, you are exempted from having to get prior authorization. Um, you know, the previous medical director um, at the state, uh, Dr. Rob Zavosky, was a, is a pediatrician, although he's now moved out of state. And uh, I think he made concessions understanding, you know, that uh, uh, fraud and abuse happens less in pediatric populations um, <laughs> than it typically does in adult populations. And he understood the value that you bring to the Medicaid uh, provider network in the state of Connecticut. Thank you very much. And Rebecca, we can take uh, your question offline. I can give you some information internally on that. Um, a follow-up uh, from uh, Jerome Lehman. I'm a pediatrician. I have some Medicare patients. I think anyone can apply. Thank you very much for that response. Um, I have a question here from uh, Ariel uh, Belek. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Uh, can you share the sign-in code for EADS, please? I... You got it? It's in the chat. Beautiful. Okay, we will put that in the chat for you. Um, I have another question here um, about Interqual. How do, how do uh, pediatricians uh, access those guidelines? So um, Interqual is a commercially available product um, that is uh, developed by, uh, that is, is licensed by a company called McKesson. They've changed their name to Change Healthcare. Um, they, uh, you know, there's a long history to Interqual, which I, I know by heart, going back to 1978, which I won't bore you with. Uh, the reviews are sold to health plans and other review agencies at uh, significant costs. We pay almost $2 million a year to use them. And it is um, considered intellectual property of Change Healthcare. So um, your case management department probably pays for a license to use the Interqual guidelines. So again, I would talk to whoever's in charge of utilization management. Um, if somebody, if a provider is asking for a redetermination request or a member is appealing a decision and we used Interqual and not a, and not a DSS policy to make the decision, um, Interqual does allow us some smart sheets where they um, summarize the criteria that were used and they do allow the health plans that buy their uh, products to share that with the providers. So in the process of asking for a provider redetermination, you can ask to see the criteria. You won't be given the actual criteria because it's an electronic process these days anyway, but you will be given that smart sheet that summarizes it. I will say um, they have more than 400 um, physician consultants on their panel. They review the criteria every uh, all the time in, in real time. We have actually asked them to review some of their criteria um, because of, of changing practice or changing practice standards in the community. And they're more than willing to do that and they will bounce it against their, their specialty or primary care reviewers. Um, they do issue an update to the guidelines once a year, typically in March to go into effect July 1st. And so um, we look at all the changes that are made and we educate our reviewers on what's changing and what's not. And uh, again, so the best uh, ways are you can request the smart sheets during an appeal, or you can talk to your um, utilization management department to what they have access to. Uh, thank you very, very much. Um, another question, uh, uh, the quality reports and the data that you have, um, are those reports and data accessible to providers who are interested uh, in doing uh, research or quality studies of their own? Yes. So. Um, 
this comes up all the time and we um, have done a number of different studies with UConn and with Yale's core. Um, anybody who is doing research and wants access to de-identified Medicaid data can put in a um, data use request with the Department of Social Services. Um, and I believe there's a process for doing that on their website. Um, and it goes through a form um, where you, you have to disclose what, what you want, what you're using it for, how the outcomes are gonna be published, et cetera. And uh, then the Department of Social Services will typically turn to CHN and ask us to fulfill the request for the requesting organization. Um, but yeah, there, there's lots of history of us doing that on a number of different fronts. Fantastic, thank you very much. Uh, and another question, uh, Looking at your, uh, and I, I, I want to make sure I'm using probably the, the correct language uh, in, from your parlance, um, but from the standpoint of uh, policies, procedures for specific benefits covered, um, and I'll use the example of bariatric surgery, um, how are changes in policy uh, implemented? How would, say, someone who's a subspecialist at Connecticut Children's interesting, uh, interested in advocating for a change of policy, how, how would they go about doing that? Sandy, do you remember if we're using Interqual right now for bariatric surgery bariatric, or if yes. we're using a policy? It, it, it's, it's Interqual, it's Interqual. Right? yes. Yeah. So um, I know in, in, in certain, I, I, I've had um, conversations with Interqual about, about specific, you know, pediatric type things that I didn't think made any sense. And um, again, they're, they're, they're responsive and, and they, you know, will will certainly engage in conversations and with, and things have changed. Um, bariatric surgery specifically, that's again, in, in, in adolescence, that's something that, um, has, has changed quite a bit. Um, and I, I, I hopefully those um, situations would come to one of the pediatricians also. Um, so that's another way where, you know, as, as a redetermination, if, you, if, if there is something that you, know, you don't agree with and can, and can have the data or whatever to make, make the case, then that would be um, one of the ways to deal with it if it's, a, if it's denial. So I guess a bigger question... Yeah. A bigger so I, question is not so much, uh, I don't think I'm asking uh, for a fish, I'm, I'm wondering about teaching someone to fish from the standpoint of actually how would someone how, or how would one um, become involved in an advocacy effort to make a change in policy? It's, a, it's not a quick answer um, or a quick solution, I'm sure. Yeah, so I, I would say that it depends on, on what level that request is being made. So if somebody is requesting an, a change in benefits, um, so uh, let's say, you know, IVF is not covered as a benefit under Medicaid. That is, uh, you know, a state determination that gets legislative approval. Um, advocacy at that level for benefits change has to go through state and legislature. So lobbying your local representatives is probably the best approach. Uh, you know, Dr. Zavosky used to tell any specialist advocating for higher specialty payment rates, uh, go to your legislature because I don't 
I don't write checks. I don't own a checkbook. That is a legislative process. If somebody is talking about a change to a DSS policy um, that is currently existing and on the website, I would say that that is an easier um, thing to approach. So you, somebody who wants to make a change to one of the DSS coverage policies can approach me, can approach Sandy, um, and we can um, you know, have a discussion about what you're requesting to be changed in the policy and why, and we can easily bounce that off DSS because we help them to update their coverage policies for specific procedures or services. Um, if you're talking about interqual criteria, um, Sandy mentioned this, um, again, you can contact interqual directly um, and your utilization management department would have contacts there at Change Healthcare through their licensing agreement to um, share some of your concerns about individual specific criteria uh, and a very made up example. So in order to be admitted to X, you need a temperature of 102.9 and it's 102.5. Uh, you know, we have those those conversations um, with Interqual, as Sandy said, um, from time to time, and they are receptive and responsive to requests to, to reevaluate some of their criteria. And lastly, on an individual case, um, Sandy um, hinted at this already. Uh, Sandy stressed that the most important thing when we're doing a review is doing a person-centered approach. Um, we are, uh, you know, the state sees Medicaid as the insurer of last resort. And so if we are not going, we are saying that we're not going to provide um, financial coverage for something, what is the most cost-effective alternative? Um, so if there is not a more cost-effective alternative, that needs to be communicated in a peer-to-peer -peer with a medical reviewer so that they are able to have all the information to make that person-centered um, decision on an individual case. So I just said those four different levels, I wanted to cover all your different avenues for um, making change in the Medicaid program. Thank you very much for that. No, Another question. I, actually, oh, I'm go sorry. ahead. I'm sorry, Sandy. Go ahead. I, I, was, I was just going to add, um, and kind of a, a little bit of a plug for another hat that I wear. But if you really are interested in advocacy um, for changing things like benefits, things that are on a legislative level, then the Connecticut chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics has a pretty active um, advocacy. Group, we're, well, we're all advocates um, and um, going through that way, again, you can, you can contact me, um, especially if, certainly if you have any um, specific issues um, that you think that should be changed more, more on a legislative benefits type level. And I can say Sandy is another uh, fellow AAP member. Way to smash that softball right out of the park. Great job. Um, uh, next question is from Jessica. Uh, and I'm Guit. I, I, again, I'm, I'm horrible with names, so I apologize if I'm massacring that. Um, uh, Guit? Guit. Okay, there you go. Uh, thank you guys very much for backing me up. Um, this extends to behavioral health. Can you please share some input on how this process extends to behavioral health services and decision-making? Is this done through Beacon uh, or does CHN also provide oversight for this process? Yes, so um, so the, the Connecticut Behavioral Health Partnership, the contract for that service, which is a tripartite agreement between DCF, DEMAS, and DSS, um, is awarded to Beacon Health Options, which um, is now a part of Anthem. Um, there is significant overlap. Um, you know, there's 
a lot of patients who have behavioral health conditions as well as active med chronic medical conditions. Um, and so we have a very active um, collaboration handoff process for warm handoffs. So um, most of the psych inpatient, all of the psych inpatient admissions are handled directly by Beacon. There are a number of instances. So a teenager comes in with a Tylenol overdose and needs to be admitted to um, ICU. That would initially first come to CHN. We would notify Beacon once the patient is medically stable. We do that warm handoff to their case management department um, for assisting in you know, the post-acute medical um, part of their admission into um, assisting with BH, um, BH services and BH follow-up. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, we have some requests. And not to forget dental care. Yeah. Dental care is done by Benicare. <laughs> uh, and so they, they have their own website. That's the CT Dental Health Partnership. Um, again, you know, we, we, are, we talk to every pregnant mom that we interact with about um, good oral health and, and referrals to the CT DHP Dental Health Partnership uh, for getting a primary care dentist, et cetera. So I didn't want, I didn't want that important part of child health to, to fall out of, <laughs> out of focus. Thank you for anticipating that one. Great, uh, great Q&A there. Um, we did put the contact numbers up that were requested by both uh, Drs. Uh, Lehman and Sachi. There's another follow-up question from Dr. Lehman, however. Um, uh, Dr. Lehman uh, states that he and his partners were audited by the state. We think our documentation, et cetera, was all good. In retrospect, it seems that we could have used your reviewers to help with the process. This will happen to other pediatricians. Can you comment? <laughs> I can. I was actually on the receiving end of a DSS audit in a prior life at the hospital of St. Raphael's. Um, so CHN is not involved in that at all. Um, there are instances where through our data analysis, we will see suspicious activity. Um, you know, ophthalmologists that are making a million dollars off of Medicaid. Uh, we have a process for, re for referring that to the department, but they have a quality assurance department that is fairly firewalled off from all of the other operations and they work more, you know, they may make a referral to the attorney general's office and you see uh, a lot, you know, in behavioral health and some of the ancillary services like physical therapy, because um, there is a lot of potential for fraud and abuse um, in those areas. Um, in, but CHN is not at all involved. And it would be considered a conflict of interest if one of our reviewers were um, to be hired by your office to assist um, you in defending your position on any documentation or billing issues that you are having from the state, um, unfortunately. Outstanding. Uh well, look, I think we're about out of time. Uh, again, I really want to um, extend a, a huge thank you to Drs. Carbonari and Magris for joining us today. Uh, I think it was very informative, helpful, and um, uh, the fact that you would take the time to do that uh, with us is very, very much appreciated. Uh, for closing remarks, um, uh, just letting uh, the audience know, our next Ask the Experts is on Friday, May 6th, with a COVID-19 update from Dr. John Schreiber. And please join us next Tuesday for our Childhood Trauma and Violence Series Grand Rounds with uh, Rebecca Sofer, uh, for healing comes from acknowledgement, the importance of storytelling and narrative and loss. Um,
be kind to your staff with your April Fool's jokes today and uh, uh, signing out from here. Bye. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone.